Hello everyone. Welcome to Timeless Voyager, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. I am your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes. So strap your cosmic seat belts on and prepare for a bumpy ride. Today's guest is Andrew D. Bajago. He is one of Timeless Voyager's most watched and requested guests. Andrew continues to draw on many years of incredible experiences as a time traveler and teleportation survivor to the planet Mars during the early 1970s. He's a lawyer, writer, public speaker, media personality, and was an independent candidate for president of the United States in 2016. However, he is best known for serving as a U.S. chrononaut in Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel and Project Mars throughout the beginnings of interdimensional travel. Did I leave anything out, Andrew? No, uh, except that, of course, the time travel was in the early 70s and the Mars visitation in the early 80s. Um, welcome to the program. Good to be with you, uh, Bruce. Uh, today I thought that I would discuss the phenomenon of time slips. Uh, I have I have five um, time slips that I think everybody will agree. At least four of them clearly show that time slips occur. That's where one is seemingly essentially entering a different timeline. One involves myself. Um, four cases involving others. And um, I, I have some information to share that I think is the reason why we're having time slips. Now, let me just ask you this, because I know you just explained a little bit about a time slip. Can you be more specific? Because some people may not really, including myself, understand what you mean by this term time slip. Well, essentially, it means that for some reason, somebody enters a different pattern of the time-space continuum. They go back to the past. They go forward to the future. They have missing time where they repeat, where they drove. The time, slip, time slips essentially describes a variety of phenomena that are occurring on our planet to modern humans that are pretty inarguable in, in terms of the lack of sort of the ordinary synchrony of time. And I don't think it's always the same thing, but it shows that there are inconsistencies in the time-space continuum. And we have a variety of explanations why that's so, but I think I may have the reason it's occurring. But I thought I would describe five time slips that I'm very fond of because I believe that they're pretty much proven and they really beg the question, what is happening with the time-space continuum where it becomes altered by an inconsistency that cannot be ignored? How does it happen? And it, But it is, it is happening. So I'm not just a believer, but I think I've literally proven that time slips are occurring. Now, before you before you start, let me just ask this: Would a person, just the the average, the normal, ordinary person, 
ever experienced a time slip themselves? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no no barrier to ordinary people mm-hmm. having very tiny little time slips that uh, we call bib slips, but also major time slips that, that they're literally, you know, decades in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, these have been documented. Let me, let me just cite one. I'll cite, I won't talk about the I'll cite in the beginning. Okay. When I recently appeared on The Unexplained with William Shatner, the show that they did with me about time travel talked about the famous Liverpool, England time slip. Essentially, a man and his wife went shopping in the 1990s, and he said goodbye to her so she could go shop somewhere else. And then he turned around and was in the 1940s. And he went into a a shop that was in the 40s and still wasn't there. But then at some point, he tried to find his wife and did find her, and they were in the 1990s again. But he wasn't remembering sometime from 50 years ago in in his youth. He was in it. Hmm. So there are these sort of rather... um, you know, substantial time slips that ordinary people have been reporting. And there's been a lot of them. I mean, we have a lot of inconsistencies that are occurring in the time-space continuum. I think it's something that world governments should be looking at a little bit more closely because I think I know what may be causing it. All right. Well, let's let's uh, get, get into them, and, and uh, I'll ask you questions as we go along. Okay. The first one is the classic and very famous Montelemar, France, time slip. There were two British couples, the Gibneys and the Simpsons. They were known to be happily married, each, each a couple, the two of them. All four of them were known to be um, solid citizens without any drug or alcohol abuse. Uh, no mental illnesses. And what they report is that they they went under the channel from England to France to go vacationing in Nice, France, in the south of France. And when they got to the town of Montelemar, they said, why don't we stop for the night at this very quaint bread and, bed and breakfast here in Montelemar? And they did, just to take a rest before reaching Nice in the south of France. And when they did, they started noticing inconsistencies about the bed and breakfast. One is that instead of having glass windows, it just had wooden shutters over the uh, windows in their room. And then when they went down to breakfast, the uh, the waitress at the bed and breakfast eatery, which was more or less like a barmaid, didn't recognize the modern French word for motorway, which was somewhat interesting because one of the uh, one of the four of them, the Gibneys or the or the Simpsons, uh, knew French rather well, and he they, he explained to the others that you know, this this waitress has never really heard of the modern word for motorway. They then had breakfast, and two 
uh, French policeman named, of course, gendarmes in France, came into the eatery dressed in period clothing from about the 1890s. And uh, they also noticed that when they paid for breakfast, the four of them were charged four pence, which would be like having a country breakfast in England and and spending four pennies. It was an incredibly small bill for uh, a full breakfast for four adults in France. So they went on to complete their vacation in Nice. No, they left Montelamar, and they went down to the south of France, spent about two weeks. And when they returned across France to enter the Channel, which of course is right next to the English Channel there, in northern France to go back to England, um, the bed and breakfast wasn't there. They searched all of the town of Montelamar. So they went back to that immediate neighborhood, and they said, wasn't there a bed and breakfast? In this area, we just spent a night there and had breakfast there on our way to Nice. And they said in French, with the one of them that spoke uh, French, they said, yes, but it was years ago. It was decades ago. And he said, when? And they said, in the 1890s, we think. So the basic import of the story of the Gypneys and the Simpsons regarding Montelamar is they had a time slip from the contemporary era back the, to the 1890s because there was no, and, and, and the amazing thing about that was nobody in Montelamar, including at the bed and breakfast, reported their modern automobile. <laughs> so that's a mystery, hmm. but that's a, a classic time slip case. And I start with it because something actually happened to me when I investigated the Montelamar time slip in the 1890s, I don't have the original time, but it was certainly the seventies, eighties or nineties, but I think it was closer to the early nineties than uh, being in the 18 and the, in the 1980s than the seventies. So it was almost a hundred years into the past that for some reason they spontaneously time slipped to, and they were not involved in, any kind of modern quantum physics, any any drug experiment. They were just going on vacation, and they went back to the past in Montelamar. So I looked into Montelamar, uh, and I investigated not so much the Gibneys and the Simpsons, but what could have been going on in Montelamar, France, hmm. when the Gibneys and the Simpsons had their famous time slope. And what I found initially, momentarily, if you will, is that the largest release of radioactive plasma in the history of the French nuclear program had occurred in Montelamar right before their time slip. And I kind of got somewhat uh, discredited unfairly in the blogosphere because everybody was saying andy we can't find this on the internet and i went back for where i had found that not about their time slip but about this horrendous release of radioactive plasma 
in the largest release of radioactive plasma in the history of the French nuclear program. And it was gone. It had been completely scrubbed off the internet. So it was either scrubbed off by somebody intentional like the French government, the French nuclear program, you know, somebody in England working for MI6 to hide the fact that the Jibneys and the Simpsons had their time slip because there had been this god-awful release of radioactive plasma. You know, the, the, I had all the evidence on the fact that the Montelamar um, nuclear plant was the biggest in France, and it was the biggest release of radioactive plasma. But I could not find that proof. It was gone. Now, either I entered a time slip, or I was told of that, that event, or it was scrubbed. So I just add that as a kind of an additional mystery or complexity of the story of the Jibneys and Simpsons. <laughs> I did have that information. I, I, I wrote about it. I don't remember who it was for. It may have been for Jeff Frentz's Rents.com website. But I wrote the whole thing up that, hey, now we know that the largest release of radioactive plasma in the history of the French nuclear program happened right before they entered Montelamar. It was in Montelamar, but then it was gone. So it added another level of, of mystery and complexity that to this day, I do not have the answer for probably 30 years later. Um, I don't know what happened to the information I was able to report, but it was good reporting. It was investigative journalism that led it to a lead that there was an explanation for the Montelamar time slip, but then it wasn't provable. It was something I had recorded as a, a reporter, an investigative reporter, and then it was gone. So this is kind of part of time slip that we're trying to deal with. What explains these time slips and what explains the the loss of information from the world that we're in it's replacement with something else or it just disappearing as part of reality and i myself and quite a number of people i've known have had all manner of erasures of reality like there are a number of people i know who got some coffee in the kitchen put it on their desk, let's say, in their study or living room or something, and then gone back and the coffee's not there. That is so commonplace that there is a subjective dimension um, to reality that we really have to look at. So are you... Montelamar case. Yeah, let me just, let me just stop for a second. So um, what you're suggesting... I guess, <clears throat> is that when most of us have an experience where we we think that we brought something into the room and then we can't find it, and then we're walking around the house looking and looking and looking, and we finally find it, and then we immediately subjectively say, oh, I guess I must have forgotten where I put it. But you're saying that may not necessarily be true. It may be a time slip. Is that correct? Yes, sometimes we will find something we've that's gone missing, and we'll say, "Oh, that's where I put it." Hmm. 
But sometimes people are saying, no, I, I didn't put it there. I went into my whatever, my living room, my kitchen, my study to work on my computer or to watch television. And I know where I put it. There have been cases that I've collected where several people remember putting it somewhere. And it is just not where it was. Hmm. It's gone. It's either totally gone or it's replaced with something. Hmm. So there's a subjective alteration of the physical substrates of reality that I think we should put as much attention into as the space program. But I'm getting a little bit ahead, but I'll, I'll okay. tell you what I think is going on. All right. Causing this. So the Montelamar case is iconic. It really happened. The Gibneys and the Simpsons totally checked out as absolutely sane, absolutely in, in possession of their faculties. They weren't faking this. They had they slept and had dinner at this bed and breakfast, and it had not been there since the 1890s. Okay, so the question is, what set this these two British couples? back to the 1890s, and we don't have an answer for these types of outcomes. I do, and it's a, a suggestion of what I think is happening, but we'll get to the, the end of the interview to get into that, but maybe even another uh, appearance here on the, on the uh, Timeless Voyager. But the bottom oh, line you, you is... Can't, the, you can't leave the, people with that for a whole show. <laughs> I've got the second a second one All right. for one that was experienced by me and two other individuals who are married couple. So let me explain this particular time slip, right. which was not to the past, but to the future. Hmm. A short period of the future. Of course, I was visiting the future intentionally in DARPA's Project Pegasus. In fact, I was in the first group of children who were gone forward in time via the chronovisor, which was on November 5th of 1971. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that this was an intentional uh, going forward in time. I know I wasn't in the program at the time. I was in it as a kid, and this was in my college years. And it was an, apparently an accidental time slip to the future. So let me describe the second one. Mm -hmm. I call it the Arthur Kessler incident. So let me describe what happened. I interviewed Art Buckminster Fuller in uh, October of 1981. In fact, on um, not Thanksgiving, but Halloween of October th uh, 31st of 1982, I then had this time slip. So I interviewed Fuller on October. I sold it to the men's magazine, We, and it came out in October, exactly a year later, the next year, 82. And when it did, I was contacted by a Boston, Massachusetts conspiracy theory named Ludwig Sherman Ahrens, also known as Lud Ahrens. I was living on the UCLA campus, one of the college dorms, and I drove to their temporary residence at um, 
a suburb of, of uh, I think it was, uh, I think it Marina Del Rey um, in, uh, in West LA. They were renting a, a condominium there. So I met Ludd and Sally Aarons, and Ludd be, being interested in conspiracy theories, um, Ludd, you know, I suggested that there were six people I know that pretty much established were assassinated by the U.S. government. They were JFK, RFK, and MLK, uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, his brother Robert, and of course the great Dr. Martin Luther King. I also knew from CIA that Jimmy, Janice, and Jim had been assassinated. Uh, the great Jimi Hendrix, the great Janice Joplin, and the great Jim Morrison. For whatever reasons that the CIA and other agencies were viewing them as domestic terrorists, if you will. But then Ludnig began talking and suggesting maybe it's been 10,000 people since World War II have been victims of government uh, assassination uh, efforts. Hmm. And I said to Ludd, well, what about Arthur Kessler and his wife? And he said, why do you say that? And I said, well, you were talking about people who've been assassinated. It could be as many as 10,000 Americans or world citizens. What about the Kesslers? And he said, Sally, please come into the room. And so Lud Aaron said, Andy, will you, come, will you repeat yourself? And I said, Sally, Lud and I were talking about the issue of assassinations. And I was suggesting that maybe that's how Arthur Kessler and his wife died in that murder-suicide. And then Lud said, well, where did you find out about that? And I said, I read about it in like Time or Newsweek over at the undergraduate research library at UCLA now the Charles E. Young Library, named for the, the then chancellor uh, of UCLA when I was a student, 1980 to 84. And, 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 and he said, Sally, did you hear that? And she said, I most certainly did. So what I found out is that I was speaking about something that wouldn't happen yet. And it wasn't a psychic event or a premonition. I remembered, and I explained to the Aarons how I remember going in to the UCLA undergraduate library and reading about the death of the Kesslers. The problem was it wasn't time yet. This was Halloween of 1982, and I know it is because Fuller's interview with me had been published that year, a year after I did the interview with Bucky, but the Kesslers wouldn't die or at least their death wouldn't be reported until like March 1st of 83. So I wasn't just giving a psychic impression that I had some sense that the Kesslers would be victims of supposedly a murder-suicide. I remembered, I, I told the Aarons, no, I remember going over to the research library and their death was being reported. Now, the interesting thing, is on my way over to the library, I was very hot. I had like a fever. But the bottom line is I had a time slip to the future. Being on the UCLA campus as an undergraduate, 
that was five months ahead of time. That has to be the only explanation. I wasn't mistaken that it was what was the the Kessler's. Arthur Kessler, of course, was the famous writer of Darkness at at Noon, mm. and a, a book called The Thirteenth Tribe, uh, suggesting that the Jewish people, the modern Ashkenazis, were Kazarians, which they were not, by the way. Only about five percent of Jewish men have any Kazarian blood, so. Kessler's basic brief on the Jewish people was simply not true. But I think probably his, his most famous book was Darkness at Noon. And I knew it was Arthur Kessler being written about. I knew it was a murder-suicide involving Mrs. Kessler. I knew when I had read it. It was before I went over to the Aaron's rental condominium in Marina del Rey. So it was before uh, Halloween before October 31st of 82. I knew I had interviewed Fuller in October of 81. And I sold it to we for, I think it was about $750. It was my first major placement of one of my works of journalism in a mainstream magazine. So the, so the Aaron's wanted to meet me after reading it and ask me questions about Fuller. When I was there, I found that Ludd was, um, during that meeting with them, I remembered that he had taped my interview, I mean, on my audio tape with Bucky Fuller, and he had other audio tape interviews. I noticed on his, on his dresser and in the living room, he had an interview with John Lennon uh, of, of the Beatles, you know, great luminary in his own right of his time. And then later, a number of years later, he said, Andy, I never recorded your interview with Fuller. And I said, Lud, I remember that happening. He said, nope. And I said, did you have a, um, an audio tape interview with John Lennon? It was on your, on your shelf. And he said, no, I never had an interview with Lennon. So this was what I call the problem of indeterminacy. Not only had I talked about a time slip to the future where Arthur Kessler and his wife were victims of like a murder or murder-suicide, either taking care of them, you know, killing themselves or assassination victims, but even the substrates of what happened when I met with Ludd and Sally Ahrens on Halloween, October 31st of 1982, did not correspond with our, our subjective memories. And this is going on a lot. And as an attorney admitted for the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington, and at the state level with the Washington State Bar Association, I have encountered this again and again and again. As an oral historian at UCLA, uh, 1985 to 88, we would interview co-participants in the same event and get entirely discrepant outcomes. Hmm. One time, remember, we interviewed three veterans of the Normandy invasion, right? June hmm. 6, 1944. One said the bandoliers arrived that morning. Another veteran said that afternoon. And the third gentleman that we interviewed said, no, that was one of our problems with Normandy, why we lost 6,000 guys. 
the bandoliers were never delivered to Normandy, at least for several days until the uh, invasion was already a success. But man, we lost a lot of a lot of soldiers in pursuit of that. So the bottom line is that the Kesslers would die, but five months later, and it wasn't a premonition, it wasn't a psychic performance, it was a memory of when I had read it. What does that mean? Now, regarding that time in my life when I was going to Mars, one of my fellow astronauts, William Whitecrow, told somebody because somebody mentioned to me, but I don't remember who it was, that all of us who were going to Mars were going back and forth between two adjacent timelines. That maybe was what was being exploited in Project Mars, induced time slips. So they could, for example, send us to Mars with what we've all remembered, which was an elevator. How does an elevator get sent to Mars? Right, right. How could it even happen, and how could it happen so quickly? We were getting to Mars in anywhere from about 10 to 20 minutes. Mm. And how do you send somebody to another planet using an elevator inside an office building in greater Los Angeles County? It was uh, El Segundo, right, Right. 999 North Sepulveda. So, but, but White Crow said, you know, listen, we were all on two adjacent timelines when we were going to Mars. So I believe the notion of time slips, the use of alternative timelines, if you will, or dimensions, is being used by our government in ways that have not been explained to us. If they are, this would explain some of these occasional accidental time slips. But number two, by no means in uh, in terms of rank, but just the one I'm talking about second, is what I call the Arthur Kessler incident. How did I remember reading about the death of of Arthur Kessler, the great Hungarian-born Jewish novelist, Mm -hmm. the author of The Great Darkness at Noon, one of the great anti-communist works of the 20th century? How did I find out about their deaths before they happened and be treating them as a fait accompli? I, I, I give you my word of honor. It was not a psychic event because I remembered going there to the UCLA, UCLA undergraduate research library and reading about it, like in the, the milestone section of Time magazine or maybe Newsweek, you know, where they report different events that have happened in the intervening week. So no, could, I, two, could I just, I have no explanation for it. Let me just, Put something in here for a second. You know, it's interesting because from my point of view, as you're as you're talking about this, it brings up the possibility that perhaps there are no psychic events in the first place. They're all they're all possibly time slips. Reason the reason I said is because when a person is listening to this or watching it. Of course, they're forming all kinds of possible arguments and things like that as you're going along. We all do that. Um, But we all basically adhere to one thread. And that thread is that there is one timeline that goes from the past to the present 
to the future. But when a person begins talking about the concepts that you're talking about, it is not very easy to, to accept it because if what we're talking about is possible, then the problem is that where does reality exist? And of course, I'm leading to the fact that we really depend on the idea that we believe in this postulate that there's past, present, and future. If we start believing in the fact that there are many pasts, many presents, and many futures, it makes everything really, really hard to accept. Or if you accept it, then the process or, or the, um, I don't know, I'm going to say reality, which we like to have become really big and important and frozen in a sense, begins to fall apart. And if that begins to fall apart, then everything begins to fall apart. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Bruce. Sure. In reality, the previous view of quantum physics, I'm going to be getting into this, but okay. the, the previous view of quantum physics, if two people in a common experience either, um, if they both disagree about what happened, the previous view of quantum physics either was either that they were both wrong or one was wrong and one was right. The mm -hmm. new model is that both could disagree and both be right. Right. Which is tantamount from, you know, information coming in from our leading physicists. Mm -hmm. You know, the Michio Kaku's, the Ron Mallets, uh, the Stephen Hawking's, the David Deutsch's of Oxford. That in fact, we do not share a common reality. And we always knew that because look, if two friends, um, say they went to college together, right? And they they occasionally met on campus, had a conversation, and then fr friend number three came along and friend number one left and went to class. It's not really true that they went to the same experience when they went to college together. They had a they had only a semi-overlapping reality. Okay. As in fact, Buckminster Fuller right. opined. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we always kind of knew that reality was only semi-overlapping and there was no shared experience, at least completely. But now quantum physics is actually deciding, it's actually theorizing that both could be talking about a different shared experience, have different um, versions of, this, of the same shared event and both be right. And if that means that we're you're saying we're being too open-minded, in fact, we're not being open-minded enough, we should say, well, it didn't happen to me, but it could have happened to the other person. Well, here's, an, here's an example. Let me just stop for a second. Here's an example. Um, I recently had a, a remote viewer that I did an interview with. And we were talking about the fact that in the remote viewing, even when he had like a really successful hit, which means that, uh, he he saw something that really did happen, and he had the sketch that showed that he had done he had found all of the different objects that were important to the remote view. But he said, the only thing I don't understand is why were these objects 
in different places. And I said, I believe it's because if the time-space continuum really isn't as location um, involved, for example, not only is there a past, present, and future, but let's just say the somewhat present. Everyone expects the same locations for certain things. Now, I don't want to get too much into this because I don't want to interrupt your flow, but I'm just trying to say one of the premises here is that your house and my house are going to be in the same place all the time. When we go, when we, we visit each other and all that, we expect that. What we don't expect is something you mentioned before in your first story, and that is I go to your house and it's not there or somewhere else. You can't find my house because the last time you were there it was on this in this area and now it's not there. So that's a very important part of the entire thread. Would would you agree with that? Yes, I didn't mention it on this show or didn't plan to mention it, but I knew somebody who had a a brain um disease and when he was released from the hospital it wasn't just a matter of a a, hoard, a a house in his neighborhood being torn down. It had never been there. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question, what is reality? Right. Did this person not remember that tearing down that house because he had an aneurysm or um, or that brain disease, I'm forgetting what it's called, where you uh, have a brain infection. But the bottom line was he checked with all the other neighbors and it had never been there. It wasn't there when he was taken to the hospital. So perception does matter, but that's why we have to ask regarding these time slips. Is it just a perceptual deficit or mistake, or is it something that's validated by numerous people? Certainly the Montelemar uh, time slip and the Arthur Kessler event, which was a time slip to the future, involved myself and, and Ludd and Sally Ahrens. And for that matter, the uh, the two Kesslers as subjects of the time slip at least involved three people, but implicated five. Um, I have a third one to show that this one is another example that could not have been a perceptual mistake or deficit or a, something attendant to a, a disease uh, of the brain. This one comes from the great broadcaster, Gary Anderson. Uh, Gary has told it on several shows that I've been on, so I believe I can kind of talk out of class here and share this story with others. Gary definitely wants it known. He lives in Gig Harbor, Washington, and he was traveling with his, his children to Rainier, Washington. They stopped at a restaurant. His kids were still young enough to say, hey, Dad, look at all these neat old cars here at the restaurant. And when they came out, they had lunch, I I presume, possibly dinner. And they came out, and they were still in the time of that place. But they were all old cars in the parking lot. So Gary says he thought that maybe they were um, people who were participating in an antique car show in the neighborhood and just stop by because it was a great restaurant to have lunch or dinner at. 
They then went back to Rainier, Washington and looked for that restaurant and it didn't exist. There were no modern cars, no antique cars, and no restaurant. So Gary investigated what happened to that restaurant and he found that the original restaurant they went to had not been there for decades. And the time that it was closed down was the time that those antique cars were seen by he and his children. So that ha- that takes it obviously out of Gary's mind. It was a shared experience. Okay. Going back to the past. Mm-hmm. Well, it does, it does show that there may be more than just the subjective experience because what we have in, in dualism is is everything has a, a, an opposite. So you have, uh, for example, y- you have the concept of of the real, let's not call it the real experience, but let's call it the objective experience and the subjective experience. And you having been an attorney, a lawyer, and and worked with witnesses, you see the objective versus the subjective over and over again. But it's possible that it's not just dual. There could be many more than just those two possibilities. Now, wait a minute, wait. I read this the other way. He had, I believe it was at least two two children in the car with him. So those are three individuals who remembered the original restaurant with the antique car shows. And then they, all three of them or more, went from Gig Harbor to Rainier, Washington. And all experienced not finding either the, the, the restaurant that was there or any evidence that had been torn down recently or those cars. So that's enough for for evidence. Right. In other words, it wasn't his subjective experience. It was the whole families, and they reported the same thing. Okay, and I, I'm not saying that they would have had separate experiences. Okay, they had the shared experience. But I'm saying it's the shared experience that they had. The question is, and of course this is, is kind of a silly question, but if you could have if there was some way to interview other people who were in the area where they were and ask them what their experience was, then you would finally find out whether there was a difference between the two experiences. Right now, we can't do that. There could have been, for example, an antique car show in the present, and then both that was shut down and the restaurant was torn up. But when Gary investigated it, that wasn't the case. The restaurant had been there decades ago, you see? Well, yeah, and I'm not suggesting either one. I'm suggesting how about if they really were in a different time uh, line, period. If they're in a different timeline. I think, I think they were. I think there was yeah. enough evidence to hang our hat on and say, yeah. if, if the, if the, if the uh, Anderson family experienced the restaurant, experienced the antique cars and and then investigated and found out that the restaurant had not been torn down recently that was reliable prima facie evidence mm-hmm. that they had time slipped into the past while stopping there for lunch or dinner and it was a, a multiplicity of family members who knew each other and were in very good terms with each other so it was a very 
I think that's a very reputable time slip. Okay. Because it was proved by three or more who agreed and investigated the very restaurant they had stopped at. You see? Mm-hmm. I'm not going. I'm not going to argue it. <laughs> and there was evidence they were in the past with not with the good luck of seeing a very a very uh, interesting uh, antique car demonstration of some kind, like a contest among antique car models. But there was there wasn't a, a car show. They were just cars from that time period that were being seen because for that short period where they stopped off the road and saw it lunch or dinner at that restaurant, they were in the past. I mean, that's my interpretation. I think you yeah. would agree with that. Yeah, I do. I ha- Actually, I have no problem with it. I was suggesting that if, if essentially what we're talking about is the way that it really is, which is that there are many timelines and people either singularly or as a group can skip around from one timeline to another for some, we don't know why. You're suggesting it had to do with something about radioactivity. It's a possibility. But all I'm saying is, it could be just that there are many timelines, and they do not have to necessarily have anything to do with the past or the present. They can have to do with anything. Well, let's hold the... Yeah, okay. The, the, the explanations I have for them. Um, I was hoping to do so. Um, number four, that was number three. Number four was told to me almost 30 years ago by a man who was a dentist in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. I don't remember exactly what what town it was. It may have been Reseda. It may have been Sherman Oaks. He was appearing in on different radio shows like Coast to Coast AM about, about time travelers, Dr. Bruce Goldberg. You probably had him on, um, on Timeless Voyager. But I'll try to get, I'll try to do justice to the story that Bruce told to me um, almost 30 years ago, not, not that long ago. It was sometime probably after 1995, but before I left Southern California in 2003 to resume my legal career up here in Washington. Um, what what Bruce reported, I think, so I'm going to give you know a caveat to Dr. Bruce Goldberg that I've tried to do um, a good uh, telling of his experience, but I apologize if I'm, I've gotten this a little wrong, but I think I, I have it right. What he said is he wanted to see the Grand Canyon in like the 1940s. He finally got the opportunity in the 1970s or 80s. But then when he developed the film from his trip to the Grand Canyon, much later in life than he had originally intended to go, like he wanted to go in his teen years, and he finally got there like when he was 45 or or 55. When he developed the film, it was of the past. Now, this gets a little bit more twisty. How the hell did that happen? All All of the cars, or 1940s vintage in the photographs. But when he did visit the Grand Canyon, he said to me, I think that's what, this is what Bruce Goldberg said to me. 
Andy, when we went to the Grand Canyon, it was still the present. Why then was the, why were the photographs taken from a much earlier time? In fact, the very time when he originally wanted to go uh, to see the Grand Canyon. So I think this is starting to indicate what may be going on. So I'll say it now, which is, there seems to be some aspect to evinced reality that indicates we're living in a self-organizing universe. So if, for example, let's say we have a desk near a window and we think about a particular person and we haven't seen them for, let's say, 40 years, and then they walk past the window, is it a coincidence or is it just that we there, there's actually a a kind of a numerical explanation of what events happen, but it's just too complex for us to model mathematically. Um, the self-organizing universe of Stanislav Grof, as it were. I had one synchronicity in which four reminders of the solar aviator Paul McCready happened to me in one morning that were unrelated. In other words, the universe was informing me of Paul McCready, hmm. almost telling me, write a book about Paul McCready, the solar uh, aviator, the creator of the gossamer albatross, the gossamer condor. Um, but Bruce was basically not sharing a time slip, but a, a form of time slipping that just happened with, with his photographs. So and that also begs the question, are we having a random reality or are we in a matrix that's being programmed and fed to us? So, for example, one possible explanation for Bruce Goldberg's was he was supposed to enjoy the experience of going to the Grand Canyon when he was in the 1940s and the universe still put that in his possession decades later. I don't really find any other explanation for the Bruce Goldberg story here. The the fourth time slip that we're looking at, which is the Bruce Goldberg um, pretty iconic story of, well, he wanted to go there earlier, but all that survived of that wish were the photographs. Mm. And I said, Bruce, did you maybe go to the Grand Canyon when you were in your teens and forget it? And he confused your photographs from then with the recent trip. And he said, absolutely not. It was one of the disappointments of my life up to that stage. I had always wanted to go at a time when the photographs of cars there at the rim of the Grand Canyon would have been 1940s era vintage automobiles. But I I, I know I never did. I finally got there like in 1975 or something. And I take a look at the photographs and it's from the past. So there is a lot of weirdness going on regarding time slips and what's really happening to the time space continuum. And, and that'll ultimately give my, my own uh, explanation. One more, I don't have the permission of the experiencer. But I'll just characterize the person involved because she did not give me permission 
to use her name back when I interviewed her around 2016 or 17. Um, she was a young actress, about 20, in Los Angeles, trying to make it in Hollywood, film or television, <laughs> multi-talented, was also a singer, a storyteller, a comedian. In fact, received advice from the great Marlon Brando that she do everything, not be limited to one craft. And she was going home to her apartment in Hollywood and she was struck by another automobile and spun out. She didn't want to have a crash. She was spun by the other automobile. The paramedics helped her get out of her car, uh, which was not really terribly injured. And she went into a woman's apartment right adjacent to the crash. She noticed that the woman was friendly and helpful and, and healthy, but she was wearing um, kind of a, a, a tie-dye blouse from the 60s and sandals from the 60s. So she didn't know whether she was a contemporary woman uh, born, let's see, the, she was born in the late 70s. So this person would have been born in the late 80, or late 90s, or not born, but in the late 90s when the crash occurred. Um, and she said the woman let her come in her apartment and call her boyfriend to, to tell him that she'd been in this crash. She went back the next Monday, I believe it was, with um, some flowers and some candy for the lady, intending to, to thank her for letting her call her boyfriend after her crash. And to also tell her boyfriend that she was okay, even though she had been spun out uh, during the uh, event. She's sure she went back to the same apartment. And yet the supervisor or landlord said, ma'am, nobody has lived in, the, in this apartment for 30 years. In fact, I'll show you, we, we use it to hold up, you know, to hold people's possessions. Um, you know, kind of like a storage unit in, in the uh, complex. Now, this one I think is a little weaker because it was only experienced by her. She can't trace the lady who was supposedly living there. And this is an example. We have to be really careful about time slips. If she was spun out in her car bad enough for paramedics to rescue her from this accident, I believe all that may have happened is she may have gone back to the wrong apartment because the manager or supervisor of the apartment complex didn't take a, a, you know, a lengthy explanation from her about what she was remembering. She, he just said, ma'am, there is no such lady here. We use this as storage. But still, it's, 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 it's more proof that time slips are probably occurring because it looks like the lady who helped her was from the 1960s. And this incident was during the late 90s. And she is adamant about the fact, or at least she was back when she contacted me five or six or seven years ago, that it was the very apartment where she had walked in and called her boyfriend. And it had a, a telephone. The lady was living there. It was all 
you know, modern equipment and everything in the apartment, mm-hmm. it was lived in. The, the lady who was helping her was living there. But then, of course, the manager said it couldn't have been man because we've used this for storage for decades and opened it up and showed her. Mm-hmm. And instead of that lady and her possessions being in that apartment, it was just everybody's random stuff that they wanted placed in storage and not in their unit. So those are the five time steps I wanted to share. And I wanted to share that last one to demonstrate sometimes people can be wrong, not from mental illness, but because of the subjective experiences to something that has just happened to them. If she was spun out, having the back of her car nicked by another car, it was just like a spinning type experience. She may have misperceived what apartment she was going back to. Okay. Um, so I, I, I don't know ultimately what happened to this person. It could have been a time slip or it could have been psychological confusion of where she was when she tried to go back to that apartment and give nice lady some flowers and candies for helping her. But time slips are definitely happening. Now, what could explain it? I believe that we should be concerned about the fact that our civilization has detonated, I think it's at least 2,200 atomic bombs and nuclear bombs, thermonuclear detonations. I think that the significance of time slips is completely underrated as just a curious event in the paranormal, something that makes sort of interesting stories and may literally be critical information we're getting that by exploding nuclear weapons, we are damaging the time-space continuum. If we are, and I think there's evidence that we are, because these events seem to have proliferated with the proliferation of nuclear weapons, we may be upsetting and permanently injuring the time-space continuum itself. The time-space continuum that we rely on so that future follows past and not the other way around. I mean, because without quantum access-based technology, we should not have experiences where event follows the cause. But as we've discussed in some of my former appearances with you and others, that's what quantum access does. In other words, time travel causes us to experience the event before the time is is experienced. That is replacing linear causation with what I call circular causation, okay? Now, we don't want to do that at random. We can tolerate that when we're using quantum access time travel devices because we know what we're doing. But to accidentally put the event before the call to mass disaster, and I really want to blow the whistle on this possibility. 
because these time slips, my investigation reveals, are proliferating. Who would want to get up when they're 50 and find themselves 25? I would. I would. (laughs) would. I'm sorry. (laughs) How would we manage reality? Right. Dealing with the event exactly. before the cause. No, you're you're you know, you're saying exactly what I was saying. You know, like a while back. But yeah, I mean, we're looking for a certain amount of of information that follows our perception, which is that it first there's a past, then there's a present, and then there's a future. Weeks right, we want it. We want it to be that way. I mean, if that gentleman in, in Liverpool that was featured on The Unexplained with William Shatner on the History Channel recently, October 13th, which is when I appeared um, the second time with Bill Shatner, it's quite an honor again. But he dropped his wife off in the 90s, and he went back and shopped in a store that was open and then closed in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. So if he had not come out of the past, he would have been his current age stuck in the World War II era. Hmm. And we that would be a hellish right. reality yeah. for potentially everybody to experience and to experience increasingly. So we have to look at these time slips to say, are we damaging the time-space continuum so critically, so seriously? that time slips are beginning and are becoming more common. Um, obviously, these five these five experiences that I shared uh, during this broadcast of uh, Timeless Voyager could represent the canary in the coal mine. We may be so damaging the time-space continuum that we result in permanent destabilization of our time-space continuum. Hmm. You know, we may go back and experience um, December 8th, and then the next day, December 7th of 19, what was it, 41, that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said would live forever as a day of infamy, in infamy. But we cannot afford to do that. With the time-space continuum, we rely on its integrity. We rely with getting married first and then having our kids, not having kids and then getting married and not even realize that the kids we were supposed to have um, after we got married, because now it's before we ever got married. Hmm. Wait a minute, it was supposed to be after we got married that we're really in. So in other words... We can't screw up the past and future and get away with it. It's going to be potentially a series of absurd, nonsensical realities. You know, we could be famous in our craft and then be totally unknown, not because we've fallen out of favor in our craft, but because we're actually younger than when we started our craft. And that's not going to work. Um for human society with all of our complex social interactions. You know, people develop expertise in their professional areas, and then they practice that professional area. 
what if they begin practicing their professional area and then learn their craft and then retire? It's not going to work. Okay. I think based on contact I had with an ET who warned me about this, he said, tell your government that they are blowing up too many nuclear weapons. And the problem is it's creating holes in space. That would be a metaphor, a way of describing the fact that the time-space continuum is being undermined. It's being damaged. And we don't want that to happen, much less for the time-space continuum to be altered irrevocably, or we are in deep, deep yogurt. And I am warning, you know, blowing the whistle on this aspect it's going to make all of us literally timeless voyagers <laughs> you know um just to uh, just to maybe interrupt for a second i think i spoke about this with you the other day when we were talking um years ago about 30 years ago <laughs> in in this time space continuum um when i had the original timeless voyager radio um i used to have al Bielik on a lot uh, he was the Philadelphia experiment guy. And he um, mentioned to me, we got into this thing about the time-space continuum. And and he said, the thing about it is, first, uh, we tend to think of things like the time-space continuum as being very, very strong, that that's the way it is. And he assured me that that is not the way it is. As a, as a matter of fact, he said, the time-space continuum is very delicate. It can easily be disrupted. And then he began to talk about the fact that we have what's called, he, I'm just echoing some things he told me. He said, we have what's called a time lock. He said, not only is the time-space continuum have a time lock, but so do we as individuals have a time lock. Correct. And then he talked about what happened in the Philadelphia experiment. He said one of the main problems that they had was after the experiment occurred, there were a number of sailors who who lost the time lock. And so what happened? Well, some of them just literally burned up for no apparent reason. They just disintegrated. Others did not know where they were and were very, very agitated, and were never the same. Um, but he came back and he said, what, we're, what I'm talking about is a rip in the time-space continuum. And that's, I believe, what you're talking about. What I'm saying, but by the way, Al Bialik told what I call the Philadelphia Experiment cover story rather than the real Philadelphia Experiment. That's Chris for another show. Okay, But I share the description of what happened by one of the physicists assigned to Pegasus, which was the Honorable Robert W. Beckwith, mm -hmm. who gave four interviews, two to me, uh, one to Alexander Bruce, and one to R. Ken Thomas, describing what happened in the real Philadelphia experiment. But suffice it to say, it doesn't really matter, because germane to uh, LBLX's point, there was something that became known as the Philadelphia experiment. And whether it was one person fused to a 
column and the splash cowling of the captain's mast of the uh, the ship or many sailors. The bottom line is that Al was talking about the fact that our our mastery and our fixedness in the time space continuum is very delicate. And that really advances my point today. Right. Should we should insist on the world's government, no governments no longer causing rifts in our mutual timelines by blowing up nuclear weapons. I believe that's what's causing it. That's been the major change since 1945 that has caused these rifts in the time-space continuum to take place as, as time slips. Time should not be played with like that. It's too delicate. Mm -hmm. And I agree with Al Bielek in making this point. Uh, in fact, we honor his memory by his, his valiant attempt to keep public interest about time travel alive because he knew some of the truths of Project Pegasus. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, whether he ultimately was in the program or was mind controlled to think he was or knew some of what had gone on. I do know that Al told me when, the one time that I talked to him on the phone that he had gone back to a former employer and they said, Al, do you know you used to work for us? And he said, no, I thought that was the first time I talked to your company. And he said, no, in fact, you've, you've worked here before. Hmm. So Al himself was a victim of an alteration of his understanding of his own life caused by these rifts in the time-space continuum and the government activities that he almost certainly was involved with on some level. That's the danger. Um, until those people pass, those people are going to have outcomes that don't make any sense. And I know that Al was thought of as kind of a, a lunatic, <laughs> but I interviewed him and I was convinced that he had been yeah. in classified defense-related research and development activities, just like I had been. Um, I've had more time to figure out exactly what happened, like what times I was going to and how long I was spending there. Yeah, you were, sure that, you were in a situation that's quite a bit different in the sense that you were being directed. And hopefully the people that were directing you yeah, understood yeah. it a little better than what happened in, in 1941 or two, whatever that year was. Al was, if at all, in the early days of time-space right. activities. I had I was a, another generation of that and had a little bit more clarity mm -hmm. as to what we were doing. But I did have some of those strange dyssynchronies of reality. Like, I was convinced Dr. Sterling Colgate was convinced about what he had done and not done. And wait a minute, he's the guy who sent me to Gettysburg on the right. day that Lincoln was uh, was giving his famous speech there. So there were non-corresponding people that I know was in Project Pegasus and some very much corresponding who admitted what we had done together. So I never really found out whether those individuals were just lying <laughs> or there were there was damage to the time-space continuum occasioned by the very activities we were involved in, okay, a la Al Biela.
But the bottom line is, if we're playing around with time space, and this, and notice how I say time space and not space time, time is in fact the primary dimension because without it, we cannot experience space. Imagine if we were with our backs to creation, we had to go forward and, and walk into reality, right? We'd have to have the time to do it or we'd never get our backs off of the, uh, the wall of creation, as it were, and, and, mm. and walk into the, the distance unfolding uh, in the physical universe. So we really should speak in terms of time space. But when we do, I think we have to be vigilant about not causing time slips, essentially. In other words, not harming the time-space continuum. It was believed by many people that chronovision was doing that, but in fact it wasn't because it just wasn't that um, it wasn't that powerful. They were going back to the past as it was and doing everything possible not to change it. I myself was understanding orders when I was going back in time, for example, to not touch anything, not destroy anything, um, and so forth. So we have to be very careful while time traveling, but also just doing things like blowing up nuclear weapons. We should not be blowing them up. Dr. Michio Kaku, when he was not talking about time travel, in fact, he refused to even talk to me about time travel when I began sharing my time travel experiences with him. Um, he was working on nuclear energy. And I think that some of our leading quantum physicists were very disturbed about nuclear energy itself, not just damaging the time-space continuum, because it's, it's having untoward effects that are very serious. And we have to prevent those effects to be at the highest level of environmental protection, if you will. Because the ultimate environment we may be protecting is the time-space continuum. How are we going to function if the time-space continuum becomes so destabilized that it's no longer performing rationally or in the way it's supposed to? We would all potentially be in great danger. But the bottom line is we do not know enough about this realm to... Uh, to start harming it. As Aldo Leopold said, the first rule is of, of you know conservation is to save all of the pieces. <laughs> and I think the first rule of conserving the time-space continuum is let's just not follow Aldo Leopold's famous advice to save all the pieces, but in the right order. Okay. Right. Yes, I was born before Julius Caesar. <laughs> If we become uh, in, in a global civilization where I, I was born before Julius Caesar, how are we going to reason the world that we're in? Everything will be altered irrevocably and nonsensically. And uh, I do believe that the handwriting is on the wall. With that, I want to say thank you so much for bringing us into uh, a, a level of perception that most of us don't think about. To everyone else, thank you for listening and watching the Timeless Voyager series. Of course, we're on video players like YouTube and audio players like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, many more. 
One thing you can do to support the growth of the Timeless Voyager series is to hit that like button, share, comment, and please subscribe. It really helps to keep the podcast on the internet so that I can keep producing content like the program you've just watched and or listened to. Also, uh, these actions are very important because they trigger algorithms. And you know, algorithms are everything these days. Uh, and they help grow the Timeless Voyager channel. Remember, there's no obligation, and the actions are free. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.